And we are jumping in today into a new three-part series called In the Valley. And I don't know what your view is of Christianity, but if you look at a lot of what's posted on Instagram, if you look at a lot of what is on TV in the name of Christianity, you would come to the conclusion that if you become a Christian, then you should just be happy all the time and only good things will ever happen to you. I don't know if you've noticed, but we never put things on coffee cups or Instagram posts that say, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. That doesn't really make it. It's not very marketable. And yet many Christians, in fact, every Christian will go through difficult seasons. We will go through moments of difficulty, days of difficulty, sometimes years of difficulty. And the Bible speaks to that, and Jesus speaks to that. And we wanted to take three weeks and look at these issues of pain and difficulty and suffering as honestly as we can, and look at what the Bible says about them so that we can find hope in those moments that is real hope, that is not stirred up fake on the outside hope, but comes from really knowing and understanding what God says to us and how we're to handle those difficult moments in life. I've always thought that if we believe Jesus is the hope of the world, and we do, then he has to be the hope of the world to us here in Canada, but also to the person living in a third world country who will never escape the cycle of poverty. The gospel has to be good news for them too. Jesus has to be hope for them too. It has to be more than just the hope that you can increase your income or change your quality of life materially. If something is true, then it has to be true Everywhere. And we're going to talk about that kind of stuff in this series. When people are asked the question, if you could ask God one thing, what would it be? One of the most popular answers is, why does he allow pain and suffering? Why does he allow pain and suffering? Why is there horrible things in the world? Others will take the issue further saying, you know, if there is a God, then he's certainly not good. What kind of God would stand by and allow all the awful things we see on the earth to unfold and to take place while doing nothing. Others admit that there probably is a God, but he's not worth worshiping, as all the suffering on the earth points to him being a masochist, a God who is able to act but chooses not to, seemingly taking pleasure in humanity's agony. And this is a, a big, big question. Why does God allow pain and suffering on the earth? How can he be good and allow pain and suffering? even in the lives of those who love him. Why doesn't he do something? One of the most interesting things, I was thinking about this this week, that we can observe in ourselves, in every person, is that pain and suffering feel fundamentally wrong to practically all of us. And I don't mean that we just don't like it, but it feels like something is amiss. You know, we mourn and we lament and we grieve when suffering interrupts our lives or the lives of those we love when loss interrupts our lives. And yet pain and suffering and death and unexpected tragedy has been a part of the human existence for as long as we have recorded history. It's always been normal. It's always been normal. And yet as a species, we have not yet adopted the attitude of, oh, well, that's just life, to pain and suffering. It still feels out of place it feels like an interruption of how things should be. When you think about it, isn't that strange? Isn't that odd if it is in fact the norm? It makes no sense that pain and suffering would be viewed as so tragic when it is in fact so normal and in fact predictable. 
There is an explanation that I want to offer for your consideration. Perhaps the reason pain and suffering feels so wrong to us is because pain and suffering were never meant to exist. We all have the sense deep down that pain and suffering are out of place with how things should be. Children shouldn't die. A life shouldn't end dramatically and tragically before its time. Those things should not be. We all feel this. And I believe that's the truth. They were never meant to exist and something has indeed gone horribly wrong with our world. We all sense, write this down, on an existential level that pain and suffering should not be the norm in our world. We all sense it, that pain and suffering should not be the norm. That's why we even have the word tragedy. In light of the fact that pain and suffering feel wrong to all of us, perhaps the best way to approach the question of why does God, if he's good, allow pain and suffering is to instead begin with the question, why is there pain and suffering? Why does it exist at all? The Bible describes a world created by Jesus that was free of pain and suffering. And in the Bible, we are able to glimpse God's original design and compare it to what we experience in our world today. We can contrast the two, the original design and what we have. The Bible begins with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're going to be reading in Genesis 2 in just a moment if you want to flip there. And it goes on to describe Jesus creating everything. Most of you know the story, the sun, the stars, plants, animals. And as he's doing this, God looks upon his creation and he declares the most remarkable thing. He says, it is good. It is good. And we can't even begin to fathom the depths of that word. When God says this is good, he's saying all of creation, everything is in a state of what we can only describe as shalom. It's this Jewish word for peace, this Hebrew word, but it means so much more than peace. It means everything is in balance, everything is in order, everything is in its right place. There is no conflict, there is no tension between anything, any two forces, any two beings, any two animals. There is nothing that is at war with itself. Everything is at rest. Everything is peace. Everything is good. That's what it means when God looked at his creation, he said it's good. He's saying it is shalom. This is, this is good. This is only beautiful. Animals were herbivores. There was no savagery in nature. It was good on a level that we can't possibly comprehend. And into this beautiful, perfect creation, God places the whole point of his creation. A man and a woman, created in his very image, self-aware, with consciousness, with free will, with the ability to appreciate beauty, with understanding and inherent love for justice, he puts them into this world to be his sons and daughters. And he looks at this man and this woman, and unbelievably to the man and the woman, he says, it is good. It is good. Again, we're talking about good on a level we can only speculate about. We know that there was apparently no death. There's no mention of it. There was no work to do in the sense that there was nothing that was laborious or cumbersome or that you would come home aching from doing. Every task that they were assigned or asked to do by God was joy. It was life-giving. They would be more invigorated after doing it than they were before doing it. 
everything was a blessing. There was no concept of work. Work doesn't exist. They didn't have to work to eat. They just grab fruit off the tree. And everything that's in there is everything they need. There's no food pyramid, no calorie counting. Everything they need, just grab it off a tree. It's all good. This was a world so good. They didn't even need to wear pants or any other clothes. This is a good, good world. I say that jokingly, but this was also a world without any type of body issues. They were not self-conscious. They didn't have a hint of being unhappy with themselves in any way. And you know, truly that is having the smallest ego you could ever have in the history of humanity is you have absolutely no thought for yourself, no concern for yourself because you're not obsessed with yourself in any way, shape, or form. Write this down. The world that Jesus gave mankind was good. And when we say good, we mean perfect. The world that Jesus gave mankind was good. And God's only real instructions to Adam and Eve are to have dominion over the earth, over all the animals on the land and in the sea. And this was not a command like, have dominion, go out and kill a bunch of animals so that they know you're in charge. This dominion was given by God. It was a position of authority. But what I mean by that is is that God made man the ruler of the earth. He gave the earth to man. And he said, Have dominion over it. So write this down. Jesus gave the title deed to the earth. In fact, the universe to man. Jesus gave the title deed. He gave ownership of the earth to man. And he said, have dominion. Name the creatures. Be blessed. Have lots of babies. That's a good assignment. And that's what God told them to do. The next step we need to take in understanding today's big question is to get into the massive question of the meaning of life. Why are we here? Why did God put man there? The Bible describes God as being complete in every sense of the word. He he lacks nothing. He needs nothing. He's not made more complete by having anything added to himself. He's not lonely. He's not insecure. He's not bored. He is complete. I've shared before that no couple who doesn't have kids has ever sat down and said, you know what, we have way too much spare money. We gotta do something about this. Let's have some kids. They've never sat down and said, you know, I've been thinking we're getting like eight hours of sleep a night. This is ridiculous. We gotta stop this. Let's have some kids. Are you not sick and tired of all our free time? I mean, we just have hours every day in which to do whatever we want. We gotta solve this problem. Kids, let's have some kids. That's not how it happens. There's something in us that wants to share our lives with children. There's something that says, wouldn't it be cool to have little versions of ourselves to to go through life with, to watch grow, to bless, to pour into? We don't need kids, but kids are a blessing to us. We don't need them, but they're a blessing to us. And that's why God made Adam and Eve and you and I. He doesn't need us at all. But the Bible says incredibly, he put in us the capacity for us to be a blessing to him because he made us to be his kids, his sons and his daughters. Write this down. We were created because God wanted to share himself and his goodness with his kids in relationship. He wanted to share himself and his goodness with his kids in relationship. 
My kids are a blessing to me, man. Their, their hugs and hearing them say, I love you, dad. Hearing them groan at my terrible jokes. Watching them grow, they, they bless me. They just bless me. And you know what wouldn't bless me? Is if instead of five kids, I had five robots who were programmed to hug me and say, I love you, dad, and do all the same stuff. Why? I mean, what if they're doing all the same actions? They're hugging me, they're saying I love you. They're doing all the same things. Why wouldn't that bless me? We all know the difference is free will. The difference is choice. My kids choose to love me. They're not programmed to do it. The affection and relationship with a being that has free will is incalculably more significant than the affection and relationship of an automaton a being that has no control or free will over their affection and their actions. The Bible says that God is love and that one statement is all we need to recognize that love is the supreme ethic of the universe. God is the supreme being and his supreme ethic is love. He even describes himself as being love incarnate. So write this down, in order for love to exist, there must be the choice to not love. In order for love to exist, there must be the choice to not love. If affection and relationship are to have any meaning at all, the person must have free will over the decision to offer that affection and relationship. We all inherently understand this. We all get this, even if we can't articulate it fully. God is so devoted to the ethic of love, it's who he is, that even the angels in heaven in a way we can't fully understand have free will. There have only ever been two archangels in heaven. There was the archangel Michael, who still is, and there was a second archangel whose name was Lucifer. And of his free will, we know he had it because he exercised it. Lucifer chose to put together an insurrection in heaven in an attempt to take the throne of God from God and himself become God. Obviously, it didn't work out so great for him. He's cast out of heaven by the other archangel, Michael, and fell to the earth as Satan. In the case of Adam and Eve, God gave them free will by doing what's described in Genesis 2.9. Take a look at that in your Bibles, Genesis 2.9. And you're gonna see that Genesis 2.9 describes the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did you catch that? There's not one tree. There's two trees in the middle of Eden, seemingly right next to each other. One is the tree of life. They eat from that all they want and assumedly experience benefits we could never wrap our mind around. Can you imagine what it must mean to eat fruit from a tree that God calls the tree of life? I don't even know what that means, but it must be amazing. However, the second tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is what the Lord told Adam about that tree. Jump to Genesis 2.16. It says this, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What God has done here is amazing to me because the Lord's created an environment in which man has free will. He has the choice to love and serve God or not. But man also got to live in a perfect world. 
You see, Adam and Eve didn't even know what evil was. They had no awareness of it. They didn't know how to have a bad thought about each other. They didn't know how to lie. They didn't know how to say hateful or hurtful things to each other. They were innocent. They were pure. They were holy. They were completely righteous. They were good. And yet they had free will because of the presence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now don't miss the warning that God gave to Adam. Does God say, if you eat the forbidden fruit, I will resent you forever and make your life miserable? Does God say, if you eat the forbidden fruit, you'll be enlightened with the truth and I can't have that? Now what does God say? What does he say? He says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's a statement of fact. He's not threatening them. He's saying this is what will happen. Just as if you jump off a certain cliff, you will die. You don't need to look at me and say, is that a threat? No, it's a fact. If you do that, you will die. At this point in time, Adam and Eve didn't even know what that meant, but they knew it was terrible. The result of disobeying God, the result of rejecting God would not be a telling off or a slap on the wrist. The result would be death, inevitable and unavoidable death. So write this down. God gave mankind the free will to choose life or death. He gave them the free will to choose life or death. And you know what happened next? Here's what the Bible says. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. So here's what happened. Make a note of this. Adam and Eve chose to believe Satan, the deceiver, over Jesus, their creator. They chose to believe Satan over Jesus. Despite the fact that their heavenly father had only ever been good to them, only ever done good for them, in that moment they chose to believe that God was the liar and Satan was the one telling the truth. And in a tragic irony, Satan deceived man with the very same lie he himself was deceived with, the belief that he should be God. It led to the downfall of Satan and that same wicked desire, the desire to be our own God, led to our downfall. And we immediately see things begin to unravel, don't we? Immediately they are self-conscious and ashamed of their nakedness. They feel guilt and shame over their sin. They hide from God over the mess they've made. Adam blames Eve, refusing to take full responsibility for his actions. Sin moves so fast through creation and everything begins to unravel. Physical death enters the world for the first time because the universe is now subject to entropy. 
It's now subject to decay and everything begins slowly dying. People, animals, the earth, the universe, everything. Pain enters the world as childbirth now becomes physically traumatic, implying incredibly that it wasn't originally that way. Strife between husband and wife come into the world as their own selfish pride now causes constant difficulties in the marriage relationship. Man will have to work and labor and do things he hates just to get the ground to produce food. It will feel like the ground is working against him, the Bible says, as he battles thorns and weeds and thistles. Animals begin to eat each other and man begins to eat animals and Adam and Eve will have to deal with the first murder much sooner than anyone could have expected as they watch their son Cain kill their other son, Abel. Everything begins unraveling. As we've said, this isn't even just an earth-related issue. Creation itself, the universe, has fallen. Through sin, death has entered into everything, into our thinking, into our actions, into our very genetics, our DNA, everything. Do you remember how we said that God gave the title deed to the earth, to the universe, to Adam? Well, when Adam chose to serve Satan instead of God, the title deed fell into the possession of Satan. Make a note of this. Mankind's rejection of God transferred ownership of the earth to Satan and caused the fall of the universe into sin. Mankind's rejection of God transferred ownership of the earth to Satan and caused the fall of the universe into sin. And if you've never heard us talk about this before, some of you will remember from last week's study that Paul calls Satan the God of this age. And Jesus himself calls him the ruler of this world three times in John's gospel. When Satan comes to tempt Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, do you remember what the final temptation was? Matthew's gospel says this, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You can read that account in multiple gospels and in none of them does Jesus ever object to Satan offering him the kingdoms of the world. Jesus never says, you don't even own those. You can't do that, you can't make that offer. Jesus doesn't dispute Satan's claim to own the kingdoms of the world and have the right and the ability to give them to Jesus should he choose to do so. Satan held the title deed to the earth. And before any of us get mad at Adam and Eve, we have to deal with the fact that the Bible makes it clear that not only would we have done the same thing, we have done the same thing. Isaiah 53, six says it like this, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What Isaiah is saying is every single one of us has rejected God and done our own thing instead. And while it may not sound like a big deal at first, the first time we chose to do what we wanted to do instead of what we knew the Lord wanted to do, in that moment we rejected God and chose to instead be our own God. God gave us the right to choose. He gave us free will because love cannot be a forced action. It has to be a choice. And every single one of us has made the choice at some point to reject God. Maybe some of us are making that choice right now. Write this down. We've all made the same decision Adam and Eve made. We've all made the same decision Adam and Eve made. 
When Adam and Eve sinned, sin came rushing into the world and with it came disease, sickness and pain, suffering, violence and everything that we know and recognize as being wrong with the world. And here's the mind-blowing, brutal truth. God has only given us what we wanted. He has only given us what we wanted. He's only allowed us to have our choice. We wanted to rule ourselves and be the masters of our own universe. We wanted to reject God and set our own rules. But we can't sustain the universe. We can't sustain the universe, so it is dying. We can't change the heart of a man from evil to good, and so evil persists in our world. The prophet Jeremiah said this. He said, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. He's saying, can you will yourself to change the color of your skin? Can you go from light to dark or dark to light just by willing it to be? Can a leopard will itself to no longer have spots? He's saying, that's how futile it is for you to think that you can will yourself to being good. That's how futile it is to think that you can fix this by just trying to be good. If everybody tries to be good, then the universe will no longer be in decay. God says that's as futile as as a leopard wishing away its spots. So where do pain and suffering come from? It comes from us. It comes from us. Because the downside to free will is the option to choose evil over good. If you want a world in which love exists, then free will must exist too. And wherever there is free will, there will always be those who will choose evil over love. And their decision will result in the infliction of violence and horror upon other people. It is the cost of free will. It is the cost of having love exist. The brokenness of our world, write this down, is our fault. The brokenness of our world is our fault. We've had thousands of years of human civilization and as I'm given to often point out, the world we have created in that time indicts all of us. It indicts all of us, it condemns all of us. We have created medicine to cure the diseases that ravage the poorest of the poor in the world and we have not done it. Have you ever thought about that? We have the money, we have the medicine, we have the means and we have not done it. Why? Money. That's the only reason. It's not a profitable enterprise. Money. We've created incredible new technologies and have we ever really used them to better mankind? No, we we use them to make money. We use them to make money. And those who can afford it can have access to them. I don't know that that qualifies as bettering mankind. We didn't use the advent of modern travel, the movement between China and the Western world to improve the lives of those in poverty in China. Instead, we said great access to an entire new class of slaves so that we can pay less for our goods, companies can make more money, and we can have more stuff. That's what we did with modern travel. We didn't use it to bring equality to the world. We just used it to enslave more remote parts of the world. 
The world around us, what we have built, is a mountain of evidence proving that we are not good. And we cannot make ourselves good. You have to be delusional to look around at the world and how the world works. You have to be unwilling to look beyond your own neighborhood and recognize the reality of what 99% of the world is like. To hold the ridiculous view that man is good and doing good things. You have to be out of your mind to think that. You have to ignore the state that 99% of the earth is in. You have to be willfully ignorant to believe that man is good. Psalm 53, it says this about the way we're wired as people. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There's none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There's none who does good, no, not one. By rejecting God, we broke ourselves. We broke ourselves. And we broke our world. We broke our universe. And we see that every time we turn on the news. God is perfect and God is only good. And because he's perfect, holy is the word. He cannot be in the presence of sin. That, that first time we rejected God, that first time we did our own thing instead of obeying him, we severed that relation irreparably. His standard is perfection and he's entitled to hold that standard because he is perfect. He's not a hypocrite in having the standard of perfection. It's who he is. He can't be around anything that is not perfect, that is not holy and right. We brought death into the world and when we gave the title deed of the universe to Satan, we gave ourselves to him too. And that meant that not only did we face physical death, but we faced death in eternity as well. The Bible makes it clear that the wages of sin is death. It's not a choice that death is gonna come for us when we sin. It is the payout, it is the inevitability. God is only good. He created us perfect and holy so we could have a relationship with him. He put us in paradise and he gave us a life of joy and peace, a life that would have lasted forever. If you wanna see what God's plans were, you need to open your Bible and read about Eden in the first few chapters of Genesis. That was God's plan. We really need to recognize this. All of this, all this pain and suffering, that's not what God allowed, that's what we allowed. It's not what God chose, it's what we chose. You wanna see God's plan, you gotta go back to the first few chapters of Genesis. Go read that and try to find one critical thing to say about God's design and about his plan. You won't find one. It was perfect, it was only good. Jesus said of Satan, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy and we put that thief in charge of the earth. We chose to partner with him instead of God. And that left us, the human race, the universe in a hopeless position. We had free will because without it love cannot exist but we used that free will to reject God, severing our relationship with him in a way we could never fix. In choosing to reject God and align ourselves with Satan, we rejected good in favor of evil. And in rejecting God, we ushered in a new age of brokenness to the universe and to ourselves, resulting in pain, suffering, violence, and everything that goes along with evil. 
People have, and people still do, react to this reality in different ways. There are those who choose to blame God, questioning how could he be good if we're experiencing all this pain and suffering. But this view expresses ultimately When you follow the train of logic to its conclusion, this view is expressing the desire essentially that God would do away with free will. It is expressing the desire that God intervene with our world and remove the natural consequences of free will. So God, whenever someone exercises their free will to choose something that's not good, we want you to intervene and stop them from doing that. What that is is ultimately an appeal for God to remove free will from the world. That's what you're saying. I only want there to be free will when they choose good. Just be rational, that's not free will. That's not free will. The option to choose evil is removed in that scenario. And in that world, love does not exist. Love does not exist. This view also ignores the reality that this is all our fault. We cannot cast our gaze to the heavens and claim injustice of God when we are only reaping the consequences of our own actions that God warned Adam and Eve about explicitly. Another view is to respond to the reality of our world by saying there is no God and the seeming chaos of the world proves this. This view ignores a mountain of evidence scientifically, existentially, historically, and instead of concluding that evil in our world proves that man is inherently evil, tries to claim that there is no such thing as evil or good. And I really don't know how a person can hold that view because when you experience evil, you know that was evil. There's no confusion about it. This view is essentially refusing to take any type of responsibility for what we've done as people and what we do as people. Lastly, there have been and there still are those who are willing to recognize the truth. Instead of blaming God, They recognize that every bit of pain and suffering we experience is one more reminder that we have broken our universe and we've broken ourselves. And instead of being angry at God or ignoring the problem, there are those who chose and still choose to instead cry out, God help us, God of mercy. There it is again, that reminder that we have broken everything. Those who look at the world around them and those who look inside at themselves with honesty will conclude that we're in a hopeless situation without the intervention of God. If God doesn't do something, we're doomed. And I wanna ask you this morning, when you encounter pain and suffering, which view do you take? Do you blame God? Do you doubt God? Or are you broken before God because you understand that you ultimately helped create the world in which this pain and suffering could exist? That's a big question. Keep that thought in your mind as we continue. Here's the incredible thing. It's unbelievable, in fact. God did do something. And the something he did is the reason all of us are here this morning talking about him. Even though Jesus said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, he went on right after that to say, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Even though Isaiah 6 began by saying, all we like sheep have gone astray, 
We have turned everyone to his own way. The very next thing he wrote was, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And while it's true that the wages of sin is death, the very next thing that verse says is, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Son of God, Jesus, came to the earth as a man. Have you ever thought about this? To fully experience his own perfect creation that we had devastated. He came to live in it. He came to breathe in it. He came to walk on it. He came to relate to it. He he came to be mocked by it. He came to be bullied by it. He came to be abused by it. His perfect creation that we had corrupted. And throughout his life, he experienced all of the evil, all of the pain, and all of the suffering that we ushered into the world when we rejected him. And Jesus did the most incredible thing. He took our place in relationship to our heavenly father. He lived a life without sinning, which none of us could do. That made him the only one who's ever been qualified to die in the place of everyone else. And then he suffered and died in our place, showing us what we deserved for our rejection of God. He suffered more than any person has ever suffered. And he experienced the full weight of death, both spiritual death and physical death. He experienced having his body broken in the most brutal way possible. And he experienced the spiritual death of being separated from his father for the first time in eternity, something we have no idea how much he suffered to be alone for the first time in eternity on the cross. It's the only time in the Bible that Jesus doesn't call his father, father. What does he say? He says, my God, my God. Do you know why? Because he couldn't call him father in that moment because he was in our place. He was our sin. He was separated from the Father in that moment. When you read the account of the cross, Jesus takes all the pain and the suffering. It's incredible when they hold out to him a sponge that has a numbing agent in it to lessen the pain. He declines it. He says no. As if to say, I'm in for all of this. Every bit of pain. Every bit of suffering. All of it. When the body of Jesus was laid in the tomb, he was there in our place. If he had stayed there, if death had been able to hold him, then death would be able to hold us. Sin would still lead to death, but it couldn't. The grave couldn't contain Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it meant that our sins were paid for, our debt was canceled, and we too can overcome the power of death, the curse of death because of Jesus. He was judged. He suffered, he died, and he rose again in our place. Would you write that down? He was judged, suffered, died, and rose again in our place. And when he did all that, here's the incredible thing. He restored unto us the choice to love him or reject him. He still, after all that, didn't force us to love him. Because love requires free will. The question I want to ask you 
is after being reminded of everything Jesus has done for you, the question I wanna ask you is, do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God is good? The answer has to be yes. It has to be. The life Jesus lived and the death that he died means there's nothing you will ever experience, no pain, no suffering, physical, emotional, spiritual, that will ever be worse than what Jesus has personally experienced as a man. This means that even though he had every right to leave us in the mess we had made, Jesus will never ask us to go through anything that he hasn't personally gone through himself. There's not a trace of hypocrisy in Jesus. Nothing. He knows what you've gone through. One of the most precious verses in the Bible, precious to me, says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, yet was in every point tested and tried as we were, yet was without sin. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may find help in our time of need. Jesus didn't just go through that to take care of sin. He went through it so that he can empathize with you. He knows what you're going through. Jesus is not a televangelist living in a $5 million house saying, hey, if things are tough, just have faith. He's gone through it. He's bled, he's suffered, he's died. And when he says, I have hope for you, he's telling the truth. When he says, I have peace for you, he's telling the truth. And it doesn't stop there. If you've been through the book of Revelation with us, then you know that God has a plan for Jesus to one day return to the earth and reign as king. And when that day comes, Jesus will reset the earth back to its Eden state and will rule the earth as king for a thousand years. And the whole point of that will be to silence anyone who would cry out, God is not good, for we will all bear witness to what his original design was. And nobody will be able to say, God is not good. We can't even begin to imagine just how much we lost when Adam and Eve and you and I rejected God in favor of ourselves. I was thinking about this this week too. You know, we lost things when the universe fell that we don't even know that we ever had. And the only clue we have is we have these small little moments that make us go, that's it. That's what I lost. It is the laughter of a child and their complete lack of being self-conscious, the way they'll dance in some stupid, ridiculous way and not care. We, we look at that and we go, there it is. That's what I lost. It's the moment you're on a mountain and you look out and the, the beauty of what you're seeing just takes your breath away and you just, you have a feeling you can't put into words and there's something in you that says, there it is, just for that second, just for that second, that's what I lost. We don't know what we've lost, but we recognize it when we see a glimpse of it. In that moment, when Jesus returns the earth to its original design, its original state, we are gonna be blown away because we have lost things that we have no idea we ever had. It's gonna be more amazing than we can possibly imagine. And you know what gives Jesus the right to do that? Is that through the cross and through his resurrection, he paid for our sins, then he conquered the power of sin and death. And when he did that, he regained the title deed to the earth from Satan. Jesus has the title deed to the earth now. 
Write this down. Jesus now holds the title deed to the earth and the future. It's in his hands, as is the future. But he hasn't cashed it in yet, so to speak. Because when he does, he's going to reign on the earth as king. So if that's true, why doesn't he just do that right now? Let's get to the good stuff, right? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus hasn't returned to the earth to take us to be with him because he's being patient. He wants to give more people more time to choose a relationship with him. Make no mistake, one day every knee is going to bow before God. Every tongue is going to confess that he's God. But Jesus is giving people time to choose to love him, to be a part of his family. He wants more kids in his family. But make no mistake, the future is set. Jesus has already won. Satan is an inching closer to victory. Jesus is just simply giving the earth more time to add to his family. So we know that free will must exist in order for love to exist. That means God has to intervene in ways that don't mess with that reality in the big sense. But I don't want to pretend that you and I will ever understand why God intervenes in some situations and not others. I don't want to pretend that we'll ever know that, this side of eternity. When we struggle with that in our own lives, when we struggle with why doesn't God intervene in my pain and suffering now? Why not me? Why can't I have the miracle story? We have to go back to two things. When we say why doesn't God do something, we have to remember he did. He did do something. He died so that your pain and suffering, my pain and suffering, would be a temporary state of affairs, not a permanent state. He died so that the pain and suffering you experience in this life will be the worst that it ever is, forever. It's your low point. In eternity, it will be forgotten and it will disappear like an old home in the rearview mirror as you drive away. We take communion so that we'll never forget and never find ourselves thinking that God has not been active on our behalf. He died and rose again on our behalf so that we would not be defined by our pain and suffering. Secondly, when we're in that place and we're thinking, God, why don't you do something here and now? We remember that God is good. We just remember God is good. If he's God, then his view has to be bigger than ours. His thoughts have to be higher than ours. His plan must be bigger than our understanding. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. And when I look at the world around me and I look at the cross, I can only conclude that I have not seen it all. I don't know the whole plan. I don't know every little detail. I haven't seen it all. But I've seen enough when I look at the cross to know that God is good. I've seen enough to know that God is good. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? Because we rejected God and brought it into the world. Why doesn't God end all of our pain and suffering right now? Because he wants others to have the chance to choose to love him, to become his child. And that can't happen without free will. He's also doing something bigger than we can imagine. And what is truly best for us individually and collectively will only be obvious when we arrive in his presence one day. And where there are those gaps in understanding, we choose to look at the cross and declare, I haven't seen it all. I don't know it all. But I've seen enough to say that God is good. 
He's good. If you're struggling with pain, if, if you are suffering, you especially need to take communion today. And as you take communion, realize that you and I only experience pain because we, like Adam and Eve, welcome sin into our lives and into our world. We welcomed it in. But instead of leaving us in that place, Jesus interrupted our hopelessness. He suffered in our place. He died in our place. He rose again in our place. And he secured a future for you and I that is free of pain and suffering, filled with better things than Eden ever saw. And I hope you'll take a moment as you take communion today to just thank God for being good. And if you've forgotten that, just take a moment to say sorry for forgetting that. Let him know that you're sorry for forgetting that he's only ever good. In John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. And then a few verses later, Jesus said this, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Because Jesus lives, we live too. Because Jesus reigns in eternity, we will too. In the biggest, deepest, most hopeless mess we could ever make, Jesus showed up and fixed it at the expense of his blood and his life. You and I are never alone. God is always good. Always, always, always good. Write this down, it's your last fill-in. We fill in the gaps of our knowledge with the truth that God is only ever good. We fill in the gaps of our knowledge with the truth that God is only ever good. When there's no answer to why, 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 we rest in what we know. God is good. He is good. And he will only ever be proven to be good. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, I pray right now for everyone here, including myself. Father, for those moments where our faith has faltered and we have questioned your goodness, God, would you forgive us? Lord, we recognize that the cross has settled that issue forever. You are good. You are good. As surely as the sun will rise tomorrow, you are good. It is not a mood. It is not a trend. It is who you are. You are good. And we bless you for that, God. We confess that you are good. Father, for anyone in this room today who is struggling with the question of why, why this pain, why this suffering, where there are no answers, Lord, would you provide peace 
in the truth that you are good. You've already saved us from death. You'll be good in this situation too. Lord, if we die in 50 years, 10 years, or tomorrow, we know that at the end of everything, our confession will be that you are good. You were faithful. You were only ever good. We love you for that, God. Lord, today as we mark and remember your victory over death, which you won for us, Lord, we pray that you would be honored in the only appropriate way, which is with our lives, top to bottom. May we honor you by living lives that speak and declare the value of what you've done for us. That we would be the kind of people who would live lives that say, what he has done for me is worth my life and so much more. Lord, all we have belongs to you. God, we just wanna be used for your glory. We wanna be a blessing to you. That we make ourselves available to you, Jesus. We offer our lives to you, God. Make this time about you and the Lord, about thanking him for what he's done for you, about confessing that he is good. He is good. He is good. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.